welcome to Incision UK in conversation with. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Rena Malik. Dr. Malik is an academic urologist who specialized in pelvic floor medicine and reconstructive surgery. Hello, Dr. Malik. Thank you very much for joining us today. Are you happy to introduce yourself for our audience? Yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me. So my name is Rena Malik. I am a urologist who is subspecialty trained in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. I initially am born and raised in Buffalo, New York and trained uh, for medical school in New York City at NYU School of Medicine. I went on to do a urology residency at University of Chicago Medicine and then subspecialized in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm currently assistant professor of surgery at University of Maryland School of Medicine, as well as the director of female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. Thank you so much. So are you happy to actually tell me a little bit how you decided to subspecialize in pelvic floor medicine and sort of what was the journey there for you? Yeah, absolutely. So when I started in medical school, I never thought that I was going to do surgery, more or less urology. And then I just, when I did my surgery rotation, I realized I really enjoyed surgery. So I looked into the subspecialties of surgery and found urology to be a really great fit. Before that, I had thought about going into OBGYN. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll consider female pelvic medicine. During residency, however, I was like, oh, I don't want to do female pelvic medicine because I didn't want to be fitting into some sort of box as a female urologist. And despite not wanting to do it, I really loved reconstructive surgery. And I loved the thought that you can really think about each patient differently. And every patient was a unique challenge. You weren't following some sort of formula necessarily for every single patient. And you were really improving their quality of life, which I think a lot of people don't realize how impactful that is. I mean, the patients who are impacted by pelvic floor disorders are really sometimes dramatically so impacted. They can't leave the house. They can't go to the movies. They can't do certain activities that they used to enjoy and love. And so being able to give that back to them is so, so meaningful and so lovely. So that's really how I decided to move forward with going to a fellowship. And it's also a lot about who you meet during your training. So my mentor, Gregory Bales at University of Chicago was an amazing mentor. He encouraged me from day one, got me involved in research, invited me to the Society of Euro dynamics and female pelvic medicine and urogenital reconstruction meeting uh, called SUFU, which is where I got introduced to the subspecialty and the people in the subspecialty. And it was, it was just a great experience. And so I decided to go for a fellowship and I've never looked back and it's been an amazing experience. Thank you for telling us about this. I wanted to ask you, what are sort of the challenges that you've encountered when it comes to to working with women who are affected by this and 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 when it comes to treatment because i think from what i was reading um some sometimes you have to have multiple surgeries so what are sort of the challenges that you've seen in in your field well there are lots of challenges i think one is that depending particularly 
pelvic floor disorders, there's not just one thing that's wrong necessarily. And if you fix it, they're going to be perfect. So that's where the multiple surgeries come in. Sometimes it's multiple things. For example, a woman may have pelvic organ prolapse and overactive bladder and stress urinary incontinence. So they may have three problems all in one. And they, for them, it's hard to understand that these are three separate problems with three separate solutions. And sometimes you can fix it all in one and sometimes not. Um, so that's one issue. And then sometimes their symptoms are so, so severe that you are limited in what you can offer them, or they have such bad comorbidities that you can't offer them some surgical options. So you come to a point where you can do, you have to take into account the patient's, you know, whole picture. So you, in our field, obviously in every medical field, we want to do no harm, but particularly in quality of life field, the biggest thing that we want to do is make sure that patients come out with a come up better than the way they came in. So we don't want to, we, you know, come in for quality of life problems that we don't want to make their quality of life, improve it in one area and worsen it in another, for example. So I think these are really times where it's, it's very hard when you see a patient who doesn't have a clear cut answer, or you've tried all the options, for example, for third line overactive bladder and you're now deciding like, do I want to do something more like a fourth line, very maximally invasive option for them versus they're just going to have to live with their incontinence. And some of it is setting up patient expectations. So I often tell them, I'm probably not going to get you dry, but I can get you better. And so I think them knowing that is, is really important. So um, there's, there's a lot of nuances to it. And so the challenges are there is that really making sure the patient's expectations are set up and that you're doing the best you can and trying to get them better at the end of the day. You might not get them perfect, but getting them better is just as important. All right. Thank you. And so when, when it comes to actually um, getting them better, what are the improvements that you want to see? Well, I think before even talking about surgical improvements or treatment option improvements, I think that we just need to get more patients that feel comfortable coming to see their doctor because so many women come to me after years of suffering, years and years, and they've been floridly incontinent or had horrible prolapse for years and have been uncomfortable and it's been limiting their lives and they've just tried to adjust to it. So I think first and foremost, I'd love to get patients to start feeling more comfortable coming to see a doctor about these really intimate problems. Second, I think, you know, d depending on where you are, the accessibility to pelvic floor physical therapy is limited and it's costly and it's timely. So I'd love to be able to find ways to do that so patients have access to it at home and not having to uh, come see a physical therapist once a week for 12 weeks because that's not really feasible for a lot of patients and they could really benefit from that. I think moving forward to surgical options, you know, we can always be improving on that front. For example, in overactive bladder, there are trials going on right now for implantable percutaneous tibial nerve stimulator type things that will change options, give us more options for patients with overactive bladder. There's also MRI compatible sacral neuromodulation and things like that that are available. So I think we are moving forward in the way of treating overactive bladder and I'm excited about that. As far as uh, pelvic organ prolapse, there's research ongoing about kind of understanding the elasticity of the vaginal wall and how we can really target what the patient needs, what the right surgery is for them or what the right treatment option is for them. So, you know, there's, there's a lot going on in, in stress incontinence. There's research ongoing for 
bulking agents that are not that are using you know stem cells or other things like that and medications for stress incontinence so i think there's a lot ongoing to continue improving treatment and i'm excited about all those things and i think we just have to continue trying to find more and better ways but above and beyond that we need to really reach patients and try to educate them and get them to come in and talk about these problems so that we can help them and so coming back to the fact that uh, your patient come in and they come in fairly sort of late what do you think could help actually to put the words out there for to maybe detect this woman earlier how do you suggest that maybe uh, we could reach them so they could be more comfortable to seek medical attention earlier i think that making education more accessible on you know on youtube on social media on different where our patients are so we need to really be where they are and start educating them about these issues and making them more comfortable talking about them you know maybe making support i know that you know the pelvic floor disorders network has uh, pelvic floor disorders website has a community forums and things like that where patients can communicate there's also facebook groups and things that people have created so that patients can talk with one another but there's still this big stigma associated with you know seeking care for these intimate problems so we just have to continue to make it more normal more feel making people feel like they're not alone with these symptoms so that they can come in and be seen earlier before their symptoms progress you know significantly i think on that same vein another thing i think we need to work on in our subspecialty is prevention so there's um you know there's this network called plus which they're working on looking at prevention of lower urinary tract symptoms in women i think it's extremely important to look at ways that we can prevent people from having lower urinary tract symptoms like working on environments so where are the bathrooms located how can we make it more accessible for workers to get to the bathroom things like that so that people aren't creating or developing voiding dysfunction and things like that so that we can eliminate the possibility of them getting symptoms lower urinary tract dysfunction at an older age and having more access to pelvic floor physical therapy peri peripartum so that you know patients can start working on improving their pelvic floor even early on and go, if going forward with that uh, early on because if at least globally so in, in global health when you think about urinary incontinence and organ prolapse those are often sort of put into a, a like a box of big illnesses of old age so you're talking about peripartum as there have been um, a lot of research on the fact that women develop this um, after sometimes traumatic delivery etc so how do you think actually it would be possible to reach women even earlier than that because i was reading a study about actually teenagers having some symptoms already so when what would you tell to the young woman the 20 year old woman yeah so there's a there's a lot of i see a lot of young women in my practice and many of them have high tone pelvic floor dysfunction which i think is really underdiagnosed and it's because people hold stress in their pelvic floor and their their muscles are constantly hyperactive or high tone and so this creates all these symptoms and i think that is majority treated with pelvic floor physical therapy so i think that these are real problems in younger women and 
you know, there are ways, what I'm personally trying to do, we're doing a research project looking at the environment in middle school and high schools. We're trying to survey middle and high school students as well as do qualitative interviews of middle and high school teachers and administrators to see what goes on at school. So I think that's a great place to find younger women and talk to them about their issues. Thank you. And so when it comes to actually progresses that you've, you've seen when it comes to even like maybe numbers or maybe the fact that now you're saying patients, some patient at least early, earlier on maybe, what are the, the progresses that you've seen when it comes to pelvic floor medicine uh, since you've started? Well, I think, you know, I mentioned a lot of them earlier. There's a lot of studies on going to improve treatment. As far as access, you know, there are, there is, you know, there's ongoing research right now in how we can prevent these things in consortiums funded by the NIH in the United States, at least. And there's, there's ongoing work on seeing if we can do this at an earlier stage. So I think there's definitely progress being made and I'm excited to see where that ends up. And women's health in general is getting more attention because it's always been kind of shut under the rug. I mean, if a man has erectile dysfunction, we jump to help him, but a female with a pelvic floor disorder often gets, you know, gets ignored or it's not as important. And so I think that we're starting as a community to pay more attention to these things and it's still a work in progress, but I'm hopeful that things will improve over time. So when it comes to uh, pelvic floor medicine, what would be your key messages um, for the, maybe the student, the, you know, aspiring medical student listening to us or actually just the general public? Yeah, I think pelvic floor medicine, at least for medical students, is so exciting, so fun, and really an amazing place to learn about quality of life. Even if you don't end up going into pelvic floor medicine, if you're doing a rotation on urology or urogynecology, you know, spending time with those providers and physicians to really learn what their day-to-day -day is like and how they interact with patients and how quality of life is important is going to serve you well beyond even your training, but just in general and how you approach patients. Because I talk to patients all the time who have really horrible medical problems and lots of problems, but all they care about is their urinary incontinence. They could care less if their hypertension is a problem or diabetes is a problem, but they are so bothered by this. And it helps kind of see the psychological aspect of patient care and how you need to approach the whole patient, even if you're doing primary care or some other sort of subspecialty. And as far as patients, uh, you know, I, I think, like I said earlier, it's really important come talk to us. We're here for you. We want to help you if you have issues with urinary incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, or any sort of urinary problems. Don't be nervous. Don't be afraid. You are worth, you are worth it. And make, take the time for yourself because you deserve it. And we, want to, we are here to help you. Thank you very much. Um, so final question, which will not really be on pelvic floor medicine, but they could be. Um, what would you, Dr. Malik, say to Rina, your former self, when she was a first year medical school medical student? 
I would tell her that imposter syndrome is real and everyone has it. So I think when I initially decided to go into urology, I was like, there's no way I can be a surgeon. I am not coordinated enough. I am not good enough. I am not smart enough, whatever it is. And fortunately, I, my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, told me, absolutely, you can do it. That's what training is for. And if he hadn't said that to me, my life would have been completely different. And I was fortunate that he was there. And I love my job and I'm so grateful that I went for it. So to all the medical students listening, you are, you are enough. You can do anything you set your mind to. And please don't hold yourself back from your dreams. I'm a mom. I'm a surgeon. I think I have a great work-life balance. I put my kids to bed every night. I spend time with them every day. I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything because I chose to be a surgeon. I actually feel like my life is so, so fulfilled. So please go for it. Do whatever you feel like doing. And what do you think your former self would say to you looking at you now as a mom, a surgeon and everything? I, I, <laughs> humbly, I think she would say, you're a badass. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually very true. Um, <laughs> to actually, I also wanted to ask you something because I found you for this listening. I found Dr. Malik because I follow her YouTube channel, which is amazing. And we will obviously link everything when we post this. So I wanted to ask you actually, how does it work for you being a surgeon, a mom, a wife, having a, such a big presence on social media? just yes how how did it happen for you why did you do this yeah absolutely so I got interested in social media as a fellow I got really involved in the Twitter community because our subspecialty organization you start tweeting at conferences and they noticed me and invited me to be on the social media committee so I in true fashion take any sort of job that I get and take it to the hundredth percent level and so I um, you know got really into Twitter and I just I gained so much from it I learned so much from Twitter I got really you know connected to people worldwide in fact I got asked to you know go to a conference internationally and speak and and a lot of opportunities came through social media but more than that I learned I met people I networked all virtually and it was amazing and so from there i you know continued with my social media journey and i got into instagram and i really wasn't sure what i was doing there at first but every every social media platform i have no idea what i'm doing when i start and you kind of watch and you learn from other people and you follow other people and you find your true voice but it takes some time and so on instagram i grew that you know, starting to, and the content's very different on each social media platform. So Instagram is more authentic me and what I want, what message I want to share with just general people. I have a lot of medical students who follow me there and things like that. So it's a different platform. Twitter is more educational. Instagram is more personal. And then it's still professional, though I still try to educate on there, but it's, it's more of um, this is who I am as a physician. And these are the things I find important to me. And then the YouTube channel came because I saw a, another physician who has an amazing YouTube channel, Mama Dr. Jones, and she was educating about obstetrics and gynecology. And I was like, this is amazing. And she was reaching so many people. And I was like, 
you know, this has the potential to educate and reach so many more people than I can do in a single day in my clinic. And so, you know, the biggest thing is ripping off the bandaid and getting started. So I made my first video and I made a goal to myself that I would make weekly videos for at least six months and see how it went. And I've done it. Six months is over and I've continued to do it. And I, you know, it's a lot of work and I've learned how to improve my workflow a little bit by getting help and things like that. But it's, it's important to me. I think it's valuable. I think I'm reaching people and I try to do things that are valuable to people watching. And so someone can learn something of value when they watch my channel. And I think it's, it's an exciting thing for me to do and it's fun and it's totally voluntary. It does take a lot of time, but I'm passionate about it and I'm really passionate about health literacy and improving education. So it continues to drive me to do more on social media. And we're so grateful for it. Honestly, your channel is, is amazing. <laughs> Thank you. So last question, what do you consider your greatest achievement? Oh, wow. That's a good question. <laughs> um, you know, I think my greatest achievement has to be, you know, my, my family and my work-life balance. I, you know, I, I love my job. I love all I've achieved at work, but more than that, I'm a, a kind of a personal growth junkie and I really read a lot about efficiency and how to balance my work life. And I'm really proud of that because I take being a mom very seriously as I do take my job very seriously. So I think that whole global picture is something I'm really proud of myself for and it's a it's a work in progress I'm always working at it and trying to get better at it but I think that's really what uh, I'm so proud of is that I've been able to do that and continue to do that and have raised so far I mean they're still young but happy healthy children and have a happy healthy marriage and those things are so important and they keep me going every day thank you so much Dr. Malik thank you so much Thank you.